You've heard of high net worth, but we're talking about high net purpose. We want to find out how entrepreneurs, global leaders in our network are allocating financial, human, and intellectual capital in pursuit of purpose. But more importantly, we want to understand the compromises, the paradoxes in their approaches, pitch decks, and philosophies. Joining us today, we're thrilled to have Alan Taylor as a guest on High Net Purpose. He's not only the leader at Endeavor, a game-changing global VC, but a powerhouse with over two decades of experience in economic development and venture capital. Picture this, since 2012, Endeavor Catalyst had been backing companies outside of VC hotspots in over 30 countries across the globe. They've even got over 50 unicorns in their portfolio. But Alan's influence doesn't stop there. He's a sought-after lecturer at Stanford Graduate School of Business and a board member across multiple organizations, such as Alter Global, Kaufman Fellows, and STV. Join us today to uncover the depth of Alan's mission to make a positive impact across the globe through investing. Alan, welcome to the High Net Purpose podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. It's good to have you in London. Yeah. And we're taking you to a pub. Uh, indeed. Yes. Which feels a million miles away from Mayfair, where I usually sit and you usually sat in Silicon Valley. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's jump in. I got to ask you first, what led you here? Why impact? And should we start all the way back in Argentina? I actually grew up in California, um, but I had an experience when I was 19, 20 years old uh, living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and it happened to be in the middle of a very real, deep, profound economic crisis. So this is 2001, 2002. Okay. Argentina had you know five presidents in two weeks. The currency collapsed. All this crazy stuff happened. And as an American who'd grown up in Silicon Valley and in an incredible place, it was my first real life experience with emerging markets and developing countries and sort of seeing the the profound way that the economic situation was impacting people's lives there. Yeah. And it really was the first time I said, this is what I think I need to work on. You know, I was a college student, right? I was, I was studying there, but um, it guided a lot of my choices afterwards around what I uh, ended up doing. Argentina is one of those places that you go to and you see just a, an abundance of resource quality of the yeah. people and you just go... Yeah, fifth fifth wealthiest country in the world a hundred years ago, right? And there's been a lot of ups and downs for them since then. I was there in 2013, um, shortly yeah. after um, uh, YPF had uh, yeah had taken over Repsol's assets. Yeah, and uh, but we'll come back a bit later as to what you're doing in Argentina today. But this started you on a path around not just financial investing, but mm -hmm. impact. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and actually, there wasn't even any investing in it until a bit later. Okay. Um, but it was when I first lived in Argentina uh, that I encountered uh, Endeavor, okay. uh, which is an organization we'll, we'll talk more about because I've now worked here for 17 years. Um, but I, again, got to know Endeavor in 2002 because Argentina is one of the very few countries where Endeavor was operating back then uh, and didn't end up joining the team until 2006. But, but what I discovered in that time period and actually in the few years after that was, you know, I wanted to have an impact. I wanted to change the world, you know, young and naive. I, I wanted to do something that really mattered. Um, and it turned out that many of the opportunities to do so uh, just didn't feel very effective, right? <laughs> like a lot of the work that was happening in Latin America, where I lived and worked after college, um, it was full of big hearted people who wanted to do good things. 
but they didn't have the skills or the frameworks to do so. And so I ended up gravitating back to these models like Ashoka, Kiva, Acumen Fund, Endeavor, and saying, hey, wait a second, this is about harnessing the power of the private sector and the skills and the people who are trained to really build things at scale and, and make effective change, but for greater kind of social good. So for people who don't know about Endeavor, yeah. um, can you explain the model? Of course. I found it quite complex to get my head around initially, particularly when you're thinking about not-for-profits, but yeah. also in scaling businesses and all the rest of it. And there's definitely been a bit more of a, um, amongst people, awareness of different marketing things around these models, et cetera. But in sure. short, we know through our um, clients at Island Bridge is an amazing organization. So can you help us understand that? More? Yeah, we can unpack it a little bit. Uh, yeah. Endeavor is kind of a strange animal, right? And so it, it takes a little bit to, to really figure out what it's all about. Um, but it is at its core uh, a 501c3 nonprofit organization uh, headquartered in New York City uh, that has affiliates or local offices that are also nonprofits uh, in about 40 different countries today, all in emerging and developing countries. So what do they actually do in country? Yeah. So what we're really doing is trying to find the very best entrepreneurs uh, in every single one of these markets and then plugging them into a global network of experience, of know-how, of connectivity, of capital that can help them grow and scale companies. So at the very core of it, yeah. Endeavor's theory of change is really built on this kind of remarkable individual theory of societal change, right? We think there are amazing people, individuals everywhere and that truly they can be found in all these different places. But what, what, what's not well distributed are the networks of, of talent, uh, excuse me, of, of connectivity, of connections, of capital that we can bring to that talent. So Endeavor thinks if we can put local teams in place that can find these entrepreneurs, then we can connect them into that global network. And uh, basic question, but, but, but why? What, what, why yeah. Yeah, a not-for-profit that's trying to help these entrepreneurs to scale their businesses? What, what, what are we missing? Is there yeah. something in here in it for the Endeavor, people who initially founded it? Uh, is it a profit motive or is it genuinely a not-for-profit? No, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it is genuinely uh, a mission-driven organization with a social goal. Um, our goal is high-quality job creation, uh, meritocratic local wealth creation, and ultimately what we call role model creation, right? If we can create success stories, those are the three different things we try to measure are the companies that we're helping to build. They're for-profit companies, by the way, high growth, for-profit businesses, but are they creating jobs and creating wealth? And are they serving as a, a success story or a role model for the next generation? That's the thing we're kind of looking at. Maybe one way to put it at its at its core, the essence, Endeavor is an economic development organization, right? No different than maybe the the IFC or a big international multilateral that says, hey, we need to create the jobs of the future in these different places. It just so happens we take a 100% private sector approach to doing it. Okay. So, so that's the, the key differentiator is that private sector and the individuals that you have locally and globally, mm -hmm. can you give us a sense as to who we're talking about? What 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 caliber, what sort of backgrounds yeah. of those? Yeah, and look, people throw around these terms all the time, network and community, and you know, I, I think people are right to be sort of skeptical if that's where you start. So what Endeavor's built over time is a very deep sort of local 
network of the very top business leaders, private sector leaders, entrepreneurs, multi-generational families, but the folks who have built the leading companies in places like Argentina and Brazil and Turkey and South Africa and Indonesia. And it's all the different emerging markets around the world, Latin America, Middle East, Africa, um, Southeast Asia. And the folks involved, I talked about sort of that local board level, mm -hmm. you know, these are multi-generational wealth or first-generational wealth, but they're, they're the most successful business leaders and families in the country, right? Tend to be the ones who serve on that board of sort of sponsoring an Endeavor chapter. Yeah. Then we hire the highest potential local folks we can to be on our team. A lot of them actually uh, return back to their home country from, you know, a decade in the UK or the US or elsewhere to be a part of this mission and, and this cause. Uh, and then, of course, the real stars of our movie are the entrepreneurs, right? So you have that board, you have all these mentors who are involved, you have the local team, and then we're really trying to find the very best local talent uh, who are building the companies. So you, you started South America. Any, any examples in South America of, of, a, of, of a company that, you know, you had some local uh, entrepreneurs help and that it's, it's been successful? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've got lots, but I guess maybe to give listeners a kind of an idea of the scale of what we're, of what we're going after, mm -hmm. um, in one of those original cohorts, this is back to 1998, 1999, um, that Endeavor supported in Argentina, uh, there were a few different companies that were successful. So there was a business called OfficeNet that was doing, you know, the very first, um, uh, online version of selling office supplies that got bought for $100 million. There was a financial services company uh, called Patagon that, you know, in that first 01, 02 time period was sold for $700 million to Banco Santander, started by a young Argentine. But most significantly in that first group uh, were two or three founders uh, named Marcos Galperin, Hernan Caza, and Nico Sacazi, who were Argentines. Uh, who were starting up a eBay, Amazon type business for Latin America called Mercado Libre. Yeah. And uh, they were one of the very first companies Endeavor sought to support, uh, selected into the network, you know, gave them advice on different things related to scaling the company, helped them raise some of their first capital. And you fast forward to today, uh, Mercado Libre went public on the NASDAQ in 07. Uh, today they have tens of thousands of employees all across Latin America. Uh, and a market cap of about $70 billion. Uh, that's the scale of business we think you can build out of emerging markets if you can get plugged into the right networks. And and so Mercado Libre, I think in, in some ways, the reason Endeavor exists today is because we had success in some of those early examples from Argentina um, that allowed us to expand into Brazil. And then we had success in Brazil and it allowed us to expand into other places. Because some of that team, of course, went on to Kazakh, which uh, went on to fund companies like New Bank, etc. Yeah. Uh, and that was all, again, part of this Endeavor network. Yeah, so we actually, we call this the multiplier effect, which yeah. is a little bit jargony, but it but it really does capture the essence of the idea, which is, you know, the the people who are changing the world here, Marcos Galperin is still the CEO of Mercado Libre 25 years later. But the other two co-founders went on to start what is today the most successful venture capital franchise in South America, right? Kazakh is now on Fund 6. They've raised a billion dollars of capital most recently. Um, they have backed a number of the next generation 
you know, unicorns or billion dollar companies coming out of the region have been invested in, coached by, mentored by uh, the partners at Kazakh, who originally started out at Mercado Libre. And that's a big part of what Endeavor tries to instill in folks and encourage them to do yeah. uh, is to, we call it pay it forward, right? We, we used to talk about giving back and then we realized actually it's not, it's not about giving back. It's actually about paying it forward to the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, part of our DNA that as we help companies grow and scale, we try to help the individuals recognize they have a larger role to play, not just in building their company, but building their country, right? And kind of improving their society. And the guys at Kazakh are, are great role models and examples of that. So for, for some of our families that were able to access Kazakh has been a, a, a great journey. I hope they were in fun one. I mean, if you bet early on these guys, they do amazing stuff. So yeah, so we ended up with stock in New Bank <laughs> today, which has been which has been great. Yeah. Um, um, so the other side of the equation is you're bringing capital as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are. So I guess there's there's the, the, there's there's two sides to this. There's capital externally that you're introducing to some of these companies, and then maybe we should talk about Catalyst as well. Yeah. So look, um, Endeavor's story is for the first 15 years of our existence, um, we didn't really do anything with capital in terms of financial capital. The, 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 the theory and the thesis was what we really need is to connect these people into mentors with knowledge, know-how, and expertise. What we realized over time was that it would also have a profound impact on some of these businesses if we were able to, in a systematic sort of organized way, um, connect them to some of the world's best investors, right? And some of the smart connected capital, because that capital could have a profound impact, not only on how fast they can grow, but on the ultimate kind of magnitude of success. And the Mercado Libre story we shared is, is one example, right? We didn't have a program for connecting to investors back then, but it was something we organically ended up doing with that team. And we realized it made a big difference in, yeah. in their journey. So, you know, I joined the Endeavor team in 2006, and around 2008, 2009, 2010, we were building programs for mentoring entrepreneurs on the equity fundraising process and actually for connecting funds and entrepreneurs together. So think of it as sort of highly curated introductions. Um, and to, just w one quick point there, because we, we've talked a lot about um, uh, South, South America. Yeah. By, by this point... Uh, mm. After 2010, 2011, yeah. you would have been where in the world at this point? Yeah, good question. Um, so I'll do it in a very personal way. Yeah. I was hired because I spoke Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese, you know, and I was the gringo who was going to work on LATAM. Yeah. Uh, I did do that for a year or two. Um, but by 08, I was spending, you know, four months in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, three months in Amman, Jordan, you know, almost half a year in Cairo. Because uh, we were expanding Endeavor across uh, the Middle East. Um, that was a region. So if we're zooming to kind of that time frame, you know, we'd launched Endeavor in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, South Africa. We were just starting to look towards Southeast Asia. Those markets came later. Um, but generally speaking today, where we sit in 2023, you know, we've been in Latin America for 25 years. Um, we've been in the broader Middle East, the markets I... Uh, talked about plus the UAE, Saudi Arabia, you know, today Tunisia, Morocco, you know, several others. We've been in that part of the world for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And the newest regions for Endeavor really are um, Asia and Africa are kind of five to 10 years old. And then now starting to do some work in what we call emerging Europe. Um, so that's Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, et cetera. Um, and even a few underserved parts of the United States, which is also a, a newer part of Endeavor. 
Okay, so I interrupted you there when you were talking about the uh, bringing capital. Yeah, to something. so sorry. So we, we're in our time machine and we're kind of around 2010. Yeah. At that point, Endeavor, we're probably in 15 countries. It's mostly Latin America and the Middle East. Um, and we're doing a lot of work actually connecting, let's say, founders from Brazil to top investors in Silicon Valley. Connecting founders from Egypt with, let's say, top investors here in London. Um, and in the process of doing those connections, the entrepreneurs keep saying to us, hey, thanks for introducing me to Excel and Sequoia, super helpful. Um, but you know, it actually really helped when you make these intros instead of just saying, you know, hey, we're vetted by Endeavor and we represent the top 1% of founders in our market, et cetera. If you just said, I'm also investing, yeah. right? And it kind of challenged our original belief, which was that we should be neutral and we shouldn't be an investor and you know, all the power in the mission was by actually not being an investor in the company. Um, in fact, uh, at one point, there was a tagline for Endeavor. This is going back to like 06, 07, where someone said, oh, yeah, I understand. It's venture capital without the capital, <laughs> right? That it's, it's, it's like all the things you do to help a company, but without actually putting in the money. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, around the same time this was happening, kind of bottoms up from our entrepreneurs, uh, there was an important moment in Endeavor's history where Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, uh, joined the global board of the nonprofit. Okay. Um, so he became a board member, I think, 2011. And in one of the first meetings, he challenged that assumption we've had for 15 years, which was, oh, no, we don't invest in the companies because we can't pick and choose and we're helping them all. And he said, yeah, but you could design a way to invest in the companies and still support them all. Because we've skipped a step there. And I know it's been... Partly due to my questioning, yeah, it's okay. It's a, it's a, it's such a phenomenal story. But because when you're picking these entrepreneurs, Ooh. how involved is that? Oh yeah, sorry, quite. Um, the the full answer is is an hour long description, so I'll give you the short version. But uh, there is a very very rigorous process to become an Endeavor entrepreneur. Um, it is about ninety percent locally run. So let's imagine you're a fintech business in the north of Brazil. Right, so you're going to meet with a bunch of a bunch of mentors and people in the network uh, who do these second opinion reviews and kind of screens for us geographically first. So in Brazil, eventually you'll bubble up to our global vertical fintech team. So you'll meet uh, sort of fintech experts who would know about your business. Uh, if you get a green light, this is over a three, six, nine month window. If you get green lights all along the way, you'll go to a national selection panel. So for the top businesses in Brazil, Brazil's a good example. We screen something like 4,000 companies a year. Wow. Um, the top 10 or 12 of those will become Endeavor entrepreneurs in a market of Brazil's size. Um, you know, I talked about being in Bucharest yesterday. Uh, you know, Romania, we screen basically every startup in the country and we'll select one or two a year, right, in terms of the scale. Yeah. Um, but if you pass that national selection panel, you go to an international selection panel, and then a panel of judges from around the world, uh, which can include actually board members like some of your clients and, you know, Reed Hoffman and whatever will actually come and sit and be the judges to help us select the next class of Endeavor entrepreneurs. Um, and that process alone, I've spoken to some of the entrepreneurs that have been through it, yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. They're getting access to these amazing people who have done it yeah. before. And uh, they get all of their questions. They get all of the feedback from them, et cetera. Some of them, of course, will be disappointed when they don't get through. But sure. That do get through, it is quite catalytic for them. Ultimately, you know, if you run the math, we're selecting kind of the, the top 1% of founders in a market 
yeah. um, from the very top of our funnel actually become Endeavor entrepreneurs. And the process can take, you know, 9, 12, 15, 18 months to actually join. But it's a deep two-way street in terms of a trust-building process um, because we're betting on these folks for life, right? Like these men and women are being invited into this network forever. Uh, and if you think about that multiplier effect, we'll follow them maybe through multiple businesses that they build, right? Or if they sell the company and build a venture fund, we'll follow them there and we'll follow them into those next iterations of their of their okay. career. So we're back in the- uh, Yeah, back in our time machine. Yes, okay. uh, you're at the forward meeting. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Hoffman is saying, why don't you bring capital to these businesses? Um, uh, what happened next? So what we actually decided to do, and it was an experiment at first, right? We had like a, a beta version of this. Um, actually, Reed and several others uh, donated some money to give us a chance at our first fund. So our first fund was, you know, 10 million bucks. It didn't have any LPs at all. It was just donations to the nonprofit to kind of test this theory. Um, what we designed and that we still operate today is a fund called Endeavor Catalyst. Um, that is a rules-based co-investment fund that can invest in all of our Endeavor companies if they raise a round of equity that meets a certain set of criteria. And the criteria are designed to be pretty simple, but it's if you're an Endeavor entrepreneur, meaning you've already gone through that whole crazy intense process with us, yeah. right? And then you're going to the market to raise $5 million or more of equity. So in venture terms, this is series A or B most of the time. And then we are able to help you attract a top tier venture fund or growth equity fund to actually lead that round, we will automatically invest in the round. Um, and that's the way we've built Endeavor Catalyst is to essentially say, you're raising 20 million bucks, great. We're in for a million. We do 5% of the round up to a couple million dollars. Yeah. We're not gonna set the terms or negotiate the price. We wanna be on your side as the entrepreneur, but we're gonna try to help you find a world-class investor to do that. And then we'll invest and piggyback essentially on their terms and invest at exactly the same terms and price. Got you. Okay. So at the end of all of this, you've ended up as a VC fund where you're 20% carry, where you guys are all getting <laughs> other people's money. Um, uh, job well done. Yeah, not quite. Okay. Um, so there's more to the story. Uh, so we do end up building a venture fund. Yeah. And, you know, for those listening, Endeavor Catalyst today, we're on fund four, we manage $500 million. You know, it's it's turned into a real franchise. With amazing investors, LPs in there. You, last one, you had to, you know, raise more than you wanted to almost. Um, yeah, we, we uh, fund four, we tried to raise 200 million. We tried to hard cap at 250. Yeah. We ended up at 292. We finally said, okay, <laughs> the strategy doesn't need more capital than this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was a result of the fact that that very first $10 million beta fund is about an 8.5x 8, 8 DPI, right? Like we actually made real money from the beginning of, of doing this, and yeah. people could really see that by the time we were we were on fund four. Oh, maybe for recent investors in venture capital, you should explain DPI. Sorry, that means actual money back, <laughs> right? Like realized. Because venture, you know, you get a lot of reports on, hey, your investment is worth 5x, 10x, but it's all on paper. Yeah. Um, so DP, the D is distributed, meaning like you you got you got your money back. Um, so, but back to the fee structure. So you, you, you yeah. guys are getting a fee on this. Is, is that what it's all about? No. So I'd say the, the most important things of how we designed this fund to be fundamentally different yeah. than a regular fund. One of them is how we do the investing, right? That rules-based strategy I just talked about. Um, and it's turned out, we'll get into some of the, the results, but 
it's worked really, really well because we really do almost a double due diligence on every company, right? Because we do the diligence to get them into Endeavor, but then we're only investing when, let's say, Axel or someone is doing diligence on the actual investment and underwriting and pricing. And so it's turned out to be quite a quite a good way to invest. But the other twist is we, as the nonprofit Endeavor, we are the management company. We are the GP of the fund. We own the fund. And we've built it very intentionally to be for the benefit of the Endeavor community and to the benefit of the Endeavor program, right? And so the goal of this is not only to help our entrepreneurs and to build these ecosystems, uh, but to obviously make money for LPs and make money to fund the future of Endeavor. And so the fee structure is very different from your traditional two and 20 model. Um, The first thing is that we don't charge a 2% management fee Um, Because we don't need to, because Endeavor already exists. We have 600 employees. We're doing all the sourcing. We're doing all the work. You know, there's an annual budget of about $60 million US that's funded by this philanthropic history, right? $60 million a year. Yeah, 600 employees, big, big footprint, right? So if you're an LP in the fund, you're like, wow, I benefit from all this infrastructure that's already been built, right? And all the companies that are getting screened and everything. So all we end up having to charge back to LPs are the expenses of running the fund, yeah. which is finance, legal, back end, you know, things we yeah. didn't do before when we were a nonprofit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, think of it as a uh, the equivalent of a management fee closer to 1% than 2%, right? Because we're just charging expenses. The real innovation, though, is on the, the carried interest because we charge a premium carry, 50%, five zero. Yeah. Um, you know, listeners may be familiar with the asset class. Typical carries 20%. Mm-hmm. Premium, if you're in a fund like Sequoia or Andreessen, is usually 30%. Um, we charge 50, so significantly more. Yeah. But we donate 100% of that carry back to the nonprofit. Um, and so the whole idea here is that, you know, we are not buying a private jets or anything with doing it. None of the people who work at Endeavor have any carried interest in the fund. Um, we do it exclusively to really try to make Endeavor self-sustaining over the long term. Yeah. And to go back to that boardroom with uh, Mr. Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, you know, Reed said to me at the time, I had, I had been in Endeavor for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a background in venture. Uh, there was a big discussion of hiring an outside fund manager or teaching one of the, you know, internal sort of the kids at Endeavor, the young people, like how to be a fund manager and Endeavor took a bet on me, sponsored me to do the Coffin Fellows program, um, really taught me this business, right? And I had amazing mentors, people like Reed and Jason Green and Nick Byme, um, who all have, you know, 20, 30 year careers as some of the most successful venture capitalists. They really coached us on how to do this, um, which has been phenomenal. Um, But I remember Reed looked at me and said, so if we get this right, we will make Endeavor self-sustaining. It's probably about a 15 year project. are you up for that? You know, I was I was 31 at the time. Um, I can say today, you know, very happily, we're 11 years in. Um, we've returned over 100 million dollars back to the nonprofit already, but in many ways, we're we're just getting started, right? Because in another kind of three to five years, and he wasn't too far off, right? Around that 15 year mark, we're going to start to generate meaningful revenue um, that will fund the nonprofit's activities. So. I want to get into the learnings that you've had from this extraordinary seat. Sure. You've been here for the last number of years. I think I have the greatest job in the world, so I, I hope that comes through. Um, uh, it certainly does in terms of your energy and your enthusiasm, and I don't quite understand how you do all that you do because you're running Catalyst and at the same time connecting, introducing, 
sourcing finding it is it's probably extraordinary and i live on one time zone it's called endeavor time uh <laughs> and i don't believe in jet lag those are those are two of the kind of keys to success i think so as an asset allocator can i just ask a couple yeah. quick questions yeah of course we, we, we move into some of the learnings that you've got from the entrepreneurs yeah go um venture capital is very risky yeah and we're now talking about venture capital in emerging markets yep so are we not just doubling up on the risk uh double the risk double the opportunity or potentially triple the opportunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are real risks to doing this. Um, you have pretty meaningful FX risk, right? There is foreign exchange risk in, in what we're doing. Um, and then obviously, these economies have a lot of potential, but they have a lot of ups and downs. Um, and so if you were, let's say, to back the best venture capital fund, you know, only in Indonesia, well, you might have some really great years, and then you might have some harder years over the next decade. Yeah. So one of the main reasons that I think makes our fund attractive to RLPs is the global diversification. Yeah. Right. The fact that, yes, we are doing this in emerging markets, but we're doing it in 40 different countries. Um, and most of the families and high net worth individuals who are part of our LP base, you know, to be honest, they're all sort of overweight their home economy. Yeah. Right? Whether they live in Asia or in Europe or even in America, like they, they tend to have their assets more concentrated in their home region. And Endeavor gives them this very interesting sort of diversification play on where the growth is coming from everywhere else in the world. Um, one way to put it into context, the markets we're operating in are very undercapitalized. So while there is risk, there is also huge upside opportunity in categories like venture because you're talking about close to 60% of the world's population. Right? This is taking out China. This is just all the emerging markets where, where Endeavor's active. 60% of the world's people, 40% of the world's GDP, only about 8% of global private capital. Right? So it's just undercapitalized, right? There, there's a big opportunity there. And so while there is risk, I think the greatest way to mitigate it, uh, global network of trust, right? On the ground people doing the diligence and sourcing, and then diversification across all the markets. So is that a real thing? Do, do, does the community, you think, I guess rather than taking rifle shots into a few markets, mm -hmm. there's something within the Endeavor community 100%. Um, I think one of the things you'll learn if you spend time in this community, in this network over time, is you can turn up in Jakarta or Lagos or Mexico City tomorrow, and the caliber of the people and the type of people that you find that have been attracted to this mission over time are exactly the same. Yeah. And so it's a very interesting thing because you're talking about a, a big group, right? We have 300 board members. We have 2,000 entrepreneurs, something like 6,000 mentors they all have this Endeavor DNA, right? Which is they believe the way you change the world is by helping entrepreneurs. Uh, and they actually believe in this kind of paying it forward and, and giving first and helping mentality. Because certainly 20 years ago or so, when I started traveling and investing in emerging markets, mm -hmm. I would often arrive into a Jakarta or KL or somewhere mm -hmm. else and feel like I'm looking at a deal that everyone else has looked at locally and decided oh the, ad, the adverse selection problem yeah yeah why why would they have this guilo be able to access yeah, yeah. a really good deal but i guess this comes to the this, local network and you're investing alongside locals this comes to the idea that endeavor is fundamentally local right it's it's locally owned and locally operated everywhere we work and you know the reason i joke about having the best job in the world is from where i sit I get to see not the adverse selection, not the leftovers where the locals didn't do it, but the very best things identified by the local talent and population of saying, hey, 
we we know we only get a couple shots a year, right? Yeah. If, if you're in KL, hey, we're Malaysia. We only get to select maybe one or two companies a year to the Endeavor Network. These are the very best ones, right? And and those are the companies we get to invest in. Um, okay, liquidity. So can you give us a sense of, yeah, have you managed to get liquidity in these yeah. markets too? Yeah, well, it's more fun to have this conversation 11 years in uh, than it was in year four. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, to be very frank and, and honest about it, when we set this thing up, a lot of people said when we pitched Fund One, okay, I believe you. Endeavor has amazing entrepreneurs. I get the kind of talent is everywhere. Yeah. But how are you actually going to make money? Like, how are these businesses going to exit? There's no liquidity in this, right? And our conclusion, I'll give you some of the numbers, but our conclusion 11 years in is the liquidity markets are not deep for doing this. Um so you do have to be in the best companies um, because if you're the number two or number three player in any segment or any geo, that might be fine in Silicon Valley, right? The number three player will still get bought for something, right? But in these places, you have to be number one to have access to liquidity. Um, so one quick story, and then I'll kind of zoom to where we are today. Uh, the very first company we turned around and invested in with Endeavor's fund was called Globant uh, from Argentina. And... We invested in sort of a later stage round for Globon because we'd been supporting them all the way back to 2007. And when we finally switched on this idea of a fund in 2012, we we did sort of a Series C check into Globon. Uh, they went public on the New York Stock Exchange two and a half years later. And so we were one company, one IPO, right? That was kind of the, the start, um, which was fun and felt good and sort of validating and allowed us to raise fund too. Um, but there was then quite a long period of not a lot of liquidity uh, through 2013, 14, 15, 16. Um, then we started to have some M&A. And then over the last four years, we've actually been able to provide a lot of liquidity um, through M&A, through IPOs. We had 10 Endeavor Catalyst portfolio companies do IPOs in 2021 and 2022. One in Indonesia on the local exchange, one in Brazil on the local exchange, eight in the U.S. on either the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. But they're not U.S. companies, they were... No, they're all international businesses. Yeah. I think that the idea is for the very best businesses, you know, if you're New Bank from Brazil, if you're D-Local, uh, if you're VTEX, like you're going to get access to the U.S. markets. Yeah. Um, and increasingly, we want to be part of kind of, of uh, paving the way, pioneering that for the very best companies from Africa, for the very best companies from the Middle East, right? It hasn't really happened in those regions yet, yeah. but we've been able to do it in Latin America and a little bit in Southeast Asia, and I think we can do it in other places as well. So um, what have you learned about identifying entrepreneurs, particularly, because we're, we're talking about the, you know, the geographical situatedness and the cultural differences across all these yep. countries. Are there any constants that, that have... Um, uh, emerge for you, or it is very different where you're looking? That's a great question. Um, in many ways, I'd say it is surprisingly similar. Now, of course, there are differences, uh, language, culture, all kinds of things. But at its very core, I think the type of human being that ends up becoming one of these what we call high-impact entrepreneurs, or one of these entrepreneurs that has like tremendous ambition and tremendous vision and an attractiveness of leadership style where people just want to follow them and work with them and build what they're building. And that works in attracting talent to the team. It works in attracting investors. Um, but they really do kind of look and feel very similar. I won't say exactly the same, but very similar, it, despite all these different um, places that we work. 
And I'll also say, you know, living in Silicon Valley, but investing in emerging markets, emerging market entrepreneurs as a as a category are 10 times as um, resilient and persistent and able to overcome obstacles as their counterparts in, you know, Silicon Valley or places where it's frankly just a little bit easier uh, to build businesses. And so there's, there's a very real level of overcoming challenge uh, in all the Endeavor entrepreneurs. Um, have there been some that have come through the selection criteria that afterwards you'd sleepless night saying we've done the wrong thing here? We've had companies fail for sure, right? Companies can go out of business. That's part of the model. Um, we've had a very, very small number of examples where we just got it wrong on the judge of character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, out of, again, like 140,000 businesses screened and, you know, 2,000 Endeavor entrepreneurs, 1,400 companies selected. I could name on one hand a few examples of like, well, we really got that one wrong. Like that guy really turned out to be an asshole, right? Yeah. Um, but because we over-index while we're selecting both the founders and the company, we over-index on the founders and we look for these high character, high integrity, high ceiling sort of individuals. Yeah. And we spend so much time with them. I think that's one of the differences too. If you're doing a series B investment and it's a competitive round, you might get it wrong because you're pressured to put a term sheet and like get things done in two weeks or two months. We spend more like one or two years like getting to know founders before they really come into the Endeavor network. And I think that sort of uh, time delay in a way allows us to really get to know people. And what I find really interesting is when you're recounting, you know, situations where it hasn't worked out, mm -hmm. um, it's not because the unit economics were wrong or it was the model or whatever. Your, your initial thing was because it was the wrong character. It's the people. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if we got the unit economics of a business wrong or let's say a business model that worked in a, in a certain environment in terms of the cost of capital and then changed significantly, that's fine. We'll live with that. We'll actually even probably back those founders in their next company, right, when they, when they build something new. Um, but for us, the only thing that's really amiss is if we select somebody into the network that we realize over time just doesn't have the ethos of, of what it means to be part of Endeavor. Uh, you've used the word impact a yeah. few times. Yep. Um, uh, what does impact mean for you? Yeah, it's a loaded term, right, especially in these conversations. Uh, Endeavor even started 10 years ago using this term high impact to try to differentiate from, you know, people were talking about impact in, in every single way. Um, but ultimately for us, right, we are trying to help build the future of these economies around the world. Uh, we talk about building the jobs of tomorrow. Um, but the real impact, I think, is in the leaders, in the human beings, in those remarkable individuals that we're supporting as Endeavor entrepreneurs, um, and to helping them, helping them sort of scale into being the best versions of themselves. Um, we've recently started internally talking a lot about, you know, Endeavor helps you scale your company and scale yourself. And if we can, over a period of, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, create you know, several thousand individuals who are not only remarkable leaders of businesses, but think about their role in society as being a role model and being an agent of change and sort of helping the next generation. And in some ways, that's happened very organically where I grew up in Silicon Valley, right? We're on sort of like generation 11 or 12, and the successful entrepreneurs tend to help the next group, right? And mentor them and angel invest in them and, and do those things. And when we talk about this multiplier effect, we're trying to do exactly the same thing. We're trying to help these entrepreneurs from all over the world sort of find their peer group, right? find the class of founders and, and people who look like them, and then invest into that next generation. And if we can do that, 
then we'll have had a real impact, right? And so in, in the short term, we'll measure these things like jobs created by the portfolio or, you know, wealth created or revenues last year. And, and we have a lot of those operational metrics, but the real impact is over a, you know, 10, 20, 30 year period. Can you change the way entrepreneurship is viewed in a society, right? Can you give people local success stories that they can look up to so it's not just Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, right? But they say, hey, these guys from Mercado Libre, like they're from Argentina. Yeah. If they can do it, maybe I can do it too, right? And, and that's the kind of impact endeavors are really shooting for in the end. So the words that you've not used in, in our discussion today that I typically get when we're talking about impact is going to be diversity and inclusion. And I guess in the governance side, the fact that you're bringing in all these mentors and um, on top of that, you're bringing in high quality long-term capital next to it. But I guess like there's so much just built into the model that other people would have at the front of the shop in terms of inclusion, diversity. We haven't spoken about carbon, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you won't see those words on our website. That's not explicit in what we're doing. But if you show up in a room, you know, we were in Istanbul, Turkey two weeks ago with 100 Endeavor founders. Yeah. That is one of the most diverse rooms you'll ever sit in yeah. in terms of what the people look like. Yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of the diversity inclusion initiatives tend to be very national in their discussion, right? I live in the U.S. We have a very kind of inward-looking domestic discussion around what this means for the U.S. Where if you zoom out and look at the world, the, the work Endeavor is doing, you can think of almost no more diverse or inclusive, uh, you know, uh, program mm. than what we're running by being in 40 different markets, literally on every continent. So for any entrepreneurs listening, mm -hmm. is there any truths about impactful entrepreneurship that they may not want to hear but absolutely need? In the end, I'm not sure if this double bottom line and triple bottom line way of approaching things actually works. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean is we back companies with a singular focus on building big scalable businesses right? that are going to create jobs and create revenue. Along the way, they're going to do a lot of good because they're working in emerging markets, because they're working in, let's say, healthcare, education, or different fields. Yeah. But a lot of the approaches that have come to to impact building or impact investing have tried to say, oh, no, we can have these you know, double, triple, bottom line things and have all these goals. I find that there's so much inherent tension built into that. It's actually very hard to do. Um, and as an investor, you might be able to do it on a portfolio level because you lean a little more one way on some things and lean a little more the other way on other things. But as a founder, it really, really is difficult at a certain point to ask yourself, like, well, what am I what am I actually really optimizing for in this choice that I have to make right now in the company? And we have found that the pure economic model of like when the motives are to build a really, really big, important company um, you'll have a lot of the impact along the way. So one of the closing questions for you, um, over the years on this journey, yeah. um, has there been any recurring challenging things for you that you found to be a bottleneck or a real uh, difficult thing to get through? Uh, I think it took me a long time to realize that uh, you only get 168 hours in a week. And, and what I mean is there are so many amazing things to do within Endeavor and within our mission. And when I look up to guys like Reed Hoffman and some of the entrepreneurs that we work with who I really admire, and I, and I see this limitation that like no matter how kind of wealthy or important you get, 
you can't increase those hours, right? You only get 168 hours. You got to sleep some of them. Yeah. Um, and so really trying to be smart about prioritization of what you do with your time and what you do with your hours has been a, a learning that I've focused a lot on over the last five years. Um, I think about it for myself. I think about it for our founders. You know, we've implemented this vocabulary of like return on time of trying to help people really understand how to measure and value their own time and get the most out of it. Because um, ultimately for me, this work is all about, um, you know, we talked a lot about impact, but it's also about leverage, right? It's about like, where can I put an hour that's going to make a big difference and really move the needle on, on what we're trying to do? And so that's something I've seen over and over. So talk about the efficiency of time. Um, thank you for your time. Of course. Well, there's a very good use of one uh, one hour, right? Or however long we had together. I, I was thrilled to do it. Very happy to be here. Um, uh, thank you for all, all that you've done with, with Endeavor and uh, we look forward to following it uh, into the future. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, well, you put it well. We've been doing this 25 years, but you know, I can't wait to see what we do in the next 25. So uh, we're, we really are just getting started. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Here on High Net Purpose, we're on a mission to bring you insights on a purpose-led life from the greatest entrepreneurs and change makers. Please support us by hitting subscribe, leave a review, and share with your network. All content on High Net Purpose is provided as general information only. It does not constitute any advice, recommendation, or representation, and is not intended to influence listeners or users into making any specific investments or any other decisions. Please be aware that guests and presenters on High Net Purpose may have investments in any of the topics or products being discussed. Their views and opinions are their own and should not be taken as endorsements or financial advice. Before making any investment or financial decisions, we strongly recommend seeking advice from a qualified financial professional.